0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right. Purim 5782. Purim traditions are the first thing I want to go over, and we are going to do a a blast with the story of the Megillah very quickly. Uh, The Megillah, there's several scrolls, but the one is called we Esther. Scroll of the book of Esther. Purim traditions. We wear costumes. It is not Jewish Halloween. Absolutely not. Goblins, ghosts, ghouls are off the menu for uh, a kosher costume, something that is correct. But we dress up in costume because through the story, God is hidden. And so a tradition that came up was to dress in costumes. When we read the Megillah together, we will say what when they say the name Haman? Boo. And what when you hear Esther and Mordecai? Yay. Yay. We have hamantashen, which is a a triangle uh, cookie that'll have different things in it. Um, Hamantashen is not Hebrew for Haman's ears. Uh, That's Nehaman, that is not what hamantashen means. We give gifts, and that is listed in the book, at the end of the Megillah. It describes how this was set into law after this. It was common tradition after the events in the book of Esther that Purim was a national holiday every year, and that what was meant to destroy us was now a gift-giving holiday of they tried to kill us and we won, let's eat. It's common to give to charity at Purim as well, and parties and just things that are fun. So let's talk about the book of Esther if you haven't read it very recently, then you should have, because Purim was two days ago. But in the book of Esther, we begin in chapter 1, where the king is throwing an extravagant party. He has an enormous party, and by the way, the Megillah is very kind to King Achosferosh. The rabbis discuss how his kindness wasn't always great, that his drunken raves that he would throw would at times possibly involve him putting on what the priest's garbs were that were stolen from Jerusalem and taken by the Babylonians and then captured by the Persians and that he would dance around in those. So while the Megillah is very kind to him at times, he wasn't necessarily the best of guys and he most likely was not the hopeless romantic many movies portray him to be. At one point he demands that Queen Vashti come to him wearing her crown. And that is very suggestive as in only her crown she refuses, and he banishes her. Then he laments, Oh, what have I done? And he says, I need to find a new queen. And then in chapter two, we are introduced to Esther. Yay! Hey. Hey. And Mordecai. And the first thing we learn about Mordecai is he cared for an orphaned family member. He was an exile from the tribe of Benjamin, and he cared for his orphan cousin. Esther won the beauty contest uh, and became queen. Shortly after that, we have these two palace guards, Bigthan and Teresh, who have a plot to kill the king, and Mordecai. Oh, come on, Mordecai! Yay! Over here's the plot. He brings it to the king. Bigthan and Teresh are hung; they're killed, and uh, the plot goes away. And then nothing happens. Generally, in empires like this, if you save the king's life, some, something happens. But nothing happened. So then in chapter 3, we're introduced to the new second in charge of the entire country, Haman. Ooh. Ooh. And Haman has a conversation apparently with the king where, and it says, the king commanded concerning Haman that everyone in the palace uh, court would bow to him. And one person said, No. Mordecai. Yay! So Haman decides the reasonable thing to do because Mordecai refused and Mordecai is a Jew that he had to have all of the Jews killed. We can boo that even though I didn't say Haman there. Boo! Boo. Mordecai learns of Haman's decree and how flippantly Haman decided to choose the date is he basically rolled dice. And that is a very sadistic way to say I hold your life in such low regard, I am going to just roll dice to know when I'm going to slaughter people. It shows a very sadistic side of him. Mordecai learns of this, and he is crying out in the courtyard. It is heard, and then there's a conversation with messengers between Mordecai and Esther, messengers going back and forth. And in the end, they decide Esther has to go to the king and that all the Jews would fast for three days, including Esther and her maids. She comes to the king, and she invites him to a banquet, which is an interesting choice when you feel like your life is on the line, but she probably knew the king better than we do. So she invites him to a banquet. During that time, Haman decides to have gallows built to hang Mordecai. I said their names really close. Haman had gallows built to hang Mordecai. Yay! The king, in chapter 6, can't sleep. They did not have uh, melatonin necessarily isolated at the time. So he's up and they're reading him, uh, the books and chronicles and different things. And he learns about Mordecai saving his life and that nothing was ever done for Mordecai. Hey, Haman comes in saying, I want to have, ooh, this guy hung before he can say anything. The king says, what should I do to someone I want to honor? Haman goes through his laundry list. Oh, you should parade him through the streets, basically dressed up as the king. Haman thinking about the king was talking about him. And so the king says, then do that for Mordecai the Jew and falls asleep. Yay. In chapter 7, Esther has the king and Haman to a second banquet. Haman's plot is revealed, and Haman, who is executed. Yay. yay. Esther, I'll allow it, reveals that Mordecai, yay, yay is her cousin. And then the king says, well, you know what? Can't really undo existing law, but here's my signet ring. Do what you will with it. Figure it out. So they write laws that the Jews are able to protect themselves and essentially go on the offensive. In chapters 9 and 10, and summed up in, they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Purim is made an official holiday. <laughs> Yay! Because if it wasn't, then what on earth would I have spoken about today? a problem with the story. And there's, there's a number of kind of issues. And the story is fun. It's 10 chapters. It's not too terribly long. It usually gets to the point. But there's a problem in the story that kind of bugged me over the years. Why didn't Mordecai bow? And in an era when we often find ourselves asking, especially over the last several years, to what degree do we obey government, regardless of what country you live in, at what point are we supposed to say, no, to people in authority. And this is a real question. The, the Torah, the whole Tanakh, and the Berhad shah they all discuss this. So as believers, it's something we have to be aware of. And at what point do we acquiesce and say, I'm a good citizen of my country. And at what point do we say, I can't do that. So let's take a look at Mordecai's refusal. It's in chapter 3 in the Megillah. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadathah, the Agagite, and advanced him and placed his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were in the king's gate would kneel and prostrate themselves before Haman. So had the king commanded concerning him. But Mordechai would neither kneel nor prostrate himself. Then the king's servants who were in the king's gate said to Mordechai, Why do you disobey the king's orders? Now it came to pass when they said this to him daily, and he did not heed them that they told this to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand up, for he had told them that he was a Jew. A common explanation here is what is the thing they shared with Haman? They essentially said, Mordecai won't bow because why? Well, he's a Jew. That is kind of an anti-Semitic way to go about it. This person is different because he's Jewish, and we can see that and what those palace advisors immediately went to. But let's take a look at that, because would him being Jewish forbid him to bow to other people? If we have a defense in Torah that we're not supposed to bow to each other, essentially, then Mordecai has a leg to stand on. But if say we have ample places where people bow to each other? Then that presents a problem for Mordecai. And we do have ample examples throughout the Tanakh. In Bereshit, Genesis 23, so Abraham stood up and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Hetz, and Abraham bowed before the people of the land. In Bereshit 27, Isaac is blessing Jacob. Yitzhak to Yaakov, may people serve you and nations bow to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow to you. When Yaakov came to esau when Jacob met with Esau, but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then the slave women came forward with their children and they bowed down. And likewise, Leah came forward with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came forward with Rachel and they bowed down. And then the next generation after that with Joseph, Joseph's dream which God gave to him, involved the sheaves of the field and the sun and the moon and the stars doing what? Bowing. And then when you fast forward just a few generations before Mordecai, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and prostrated himself before Daniel. And after that, it talks about how he was going to offer up essentially a drink offering and a libation, which seems awfully close to not just showing deep respect, but worship. So that that reason that a lot of us were given as kids that Mordecai couldn't bow because he's Jewish, it's a nice way to try to sum it up really fast. And in one way, it might actually be accurate, but in another very real way, it's wrong. Well, it sounds like a very great anti-idolatry stance. It doesn't hold water. So we have to line that one out that were not necessarily forbidden to bow to other people. And culture, cultures all over the world, they don't shake hands, they bow. Then we have the other common response in a lot of Judaism that the rabbis discuss, that there was an idol around Haman's neck. And there is a giant screaming problem with that, in that it is not at all in the Megillah and commentaries can be extremely useful. They can shed light on things that we hadn't considered. But this comes from uh, Esther Rabbah, which was written sometime between the four and the sixth century. And it says in Esther Rabbah, what did Haman do? And this is after he descended to second in command of Persia. He crafted for himself an embroidered image on his garment and on his heart. And anyone who would prostrate himself to Haman would prostrate them himself to the image. So he tried to have it, essentially, as the rabbis say, that Haman had an idol around his neck. And when he'd walk around, when people were told to bow to him, they were actually bowing to an idol. And that would be a fascinating way to kind of sum it all up. Well, Mordecai refused because then, bam, that's idolatry. The bowing to a person, well, that's technically okay, as long as it's not in a context of worship, but it's a context of a deep respect. But, oh, if there's an idol around the person's neck, then that's an issue. But the big problem we have for this is it's not in the Megillah. And the Megillah does not spare detail. It gives us details that you'll look at it and say, why did I need to know what color the drapes were? Why was it important to know that the horses were fast? It gives us a lot of details. And then you wonder, that would be a really important thing that would take half a verse, by the way, Haman had an idol around his neck and Mordecai refused to bow. Now, while perhaps I'll give the rabbis a little benefit of the doubt here and say they could be discussing metaphor or something more symbolic and absolutely. But that is another discussion for another time. So we have to line that one out too. And then a kind of side question to all of this. Was Mordecai breaking the law? Was he even in the right? If there's no command in Torah to not bow, and there's no idol around Haman's neck, then was Mordecai in the right or in the wrong? And if it's a king's command, and we're told to make every reasonable effort to stay on good terms with local authorities, with our government, Rav Shul writes in Romans 13, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So why was Mordecai saying no? If we don't have a direct command in Torah that's being broken here, there's no idol around Haman's neck. Did Mordecai have a leg to stand on? Was, Was he wrong? Now, Rav the Apostle Paul, wrote Romans 13 in a context of the gospel being spread throughout all of Europe and Rome being the capital of the Roman Empire. There might have been a problem with news of the Messiah coming to the believers in Rome. And Roman authorities might have been a tad concerned that that would cause some kind of rebellion to rise up. So in his letter to Rome, Rav Shul specifies that you are to stay on good terms with the government and not one bit of what I'm writing to you means that you need to start uprising. So Rav Shul put those implications to rest. But the words still stand. And this is not a foreign concept to Judaism, by the way. The Talmud discusses that we're to obey the local laws, generally speaking. Judaism has a general principle that you are to obey the law of the land. And then we have another glaring issue. What about Joseph? He was second in command of Egypt. And we read in Bereshit 41, then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put on a gold necklace around his neck and had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed ahead of him, bow of Rech, and he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Why was this okay? For people to bow to Joseph, second in charge of Egypt, but not Haman. Why did Mordecai say no? And if we can't isolate that, then that becomes a big problem. Because then, when we feel like government is reaching or we're asked to do something that's a little uncomfortable, when do we know when to say no? And when do we know to acquiesce? So how was it okay for Joseph? But Mordecai said no. And if Mordecai were back in Joseph's time, would he have been the guy in Pharaoh's court saying, no, I refuse? So what was Mordecai's rationale? The king gave a command to bow to Haman. Right? Maybe. Let's take a look at that. <laughs> Maybe. Esther chapter 3. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordechai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Let's take a look at that exact Hebrew. Kichen tziva lo hamelech. Literally, for so the king commanded him. And that puts it a little more in the context of what might have been a private conversation. We're never given that this was an actual written decree given out, it was never passed into law. It sounds a lot more like the context of a private conversation being had between Haman and Mordecai. And we can also see that when Haman brings the issue to the king, that he wants to have all the Jews exterminated. If Mordecai were actually breaking a written law he would have had an exact legal precedent to bring up. But he didn't. Haman doesn't bring it up. He circumvents it because his ego is being bruised, because there's this thing he wants. He wants everyone to bow to him like they bow to the king. And it's something he's stomping his feet and demanding. We see an indication here this was not a real enforceable law. And the rabbis pick up a little bit on this, that Haman really wanted it. He desired it and he craved it. In the Rabbah commentary, the rabbis say, B'nei Rachel, Nesan Nisan Udulatan Udilatan Shavah. The children of Rachel, their miracles are equal, their ascent to greatness is equal. And just like we had Joseph in Egypt go through many trials and eventually became second in command of Egypt. Mordecai went through many trials, a Jew exiled in Persia, and ultimately became second in charge. And the children of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Mordecai was from the, child of, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a child of Rachel, of Rachel. And the rabbis pick up on a connection between Mordecai's refusal and another part of Torah. And it says in the Megillah, Esther chapter 3, Now it came to pass when they said this to him daily, that he did not heed them. And they told this to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand up, for he had told them that he was a Jew. This language, now it came to pass when they said this to him daily, that he did not heed them, that he would not listen to them. This language is used only one other time in the Tanakh. And it happens to be with the child of Rachel before Joseph became second in charge of Egypt, he was in charge of a household, Potiphar's. And he was working for Potiphar, head of his home, and different from Potiphar, in only one way, his wife. And Potiphar's wife kept pursuing him, and it says, now it came about, in Bereshit 39, when she spoke to Joseph day in, day out, He did not obey her, to lie beside her, to be with her. Just like it says in Esther regarding Mordecai, it came to pass when they said this to him daily, he did not heed them, and they told this to Haman. And if you want to take a closer look at the Hebrew, in the next slide, you can see where, even if you don't read Hebrew, it lines up very closely, and this phrasing is not common. And the rabbis pick up on it. It's nearly exact. So the Megillah is calling us back to that story of Joseph. It's using this exact phrasing to refer back to that one time in Torah when someone who had authority, and Mordecai was in the king's gate, not, not anyone had that kind of a position, was being pushed to do something that was not good. Joseph refused Potiphar's wife on the grounds. He could not take what only belonged to Potiphar. He was like Potiphar in every way but one, his wife. If that's what Potiphar's wife was after, what was Haman after? Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph. Haman, he wanted Mordecai, but not like that. When the king poses a question to Haman, when the king is deciding how exactly he should honor Mordecai, and the king says to Haman, what should I do to the man I wish to honor, that the king desires to honor? Haman says, what is to be done to the man who the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Therefore Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, have them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal turban has been placed. Then order them to, stand, to hand the robe and the horse over to one of the king's most noble officials, and have them dress the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, So it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. And if you want another way to look at that conversation on the very next slide what words leap out what was Haman after what was he coveting what was he craving what is that thing that he wanted that one thing that was essentially at that point forbidden to him it was not enough that he was second in charge of Persia his actual desire and intent at that point is obvious second in charge was only a stepping stone Haman craved to be first. He desired to be first. He wanted everyone to bow to him like the king. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for any real additional power. He wanted everyone to see him as the king. That is pure ego. And that is in direct opposition to Joseph. He didn't seek that. He didn't crave it. He didn't ask to be made second in charge. And he already demonstrated when he was in Potiphar's house that he understood clear boundaries between first in charge and second in charge. He understood the role he was in, and he was very good at it. And Yeshua teaches on this with greatness. If someone craves, if they lust after power and authority, that's not going to be what you're really going to get. In Mark chapter 9, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then again in Mark chapter 10, But many of who are first will be last, and the last first. Haman craved to be first. He wanted it. What did he say he wanted from the king? The king's robes, the king's crown, the king's horse. I want to look like the king. Because maybe if there was a little accident with the king, people would already be used to seeing me that way. And that is why many commentators, many Messianic commentators will see these connections, and we've spoken on it here, that Joseph and Mordecai, we see these attributes mirrored with Messiah. When they had this potential for absolute power put in front of them, what do they do? They show humility in Philippians chapter 2. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who as he already existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. There's a lot of different ways to translate that, by the way. But emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. For this reason... Also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Joseph and Mordecai rose to greatness through their humility. Haman did not. So, how was Mordecai different? What's the first thing we learn about Mordecai in the Megillah when he's introduced? He's an exile in Persia from the tribe of Benjamin working in the king's court who cared for an orphan. He had humility and he had leadership. He had loyalty to his king. Not the fake kind of loyalty where you just make sure you look loyal like Haman had. He had a true loyalty, which meant even if he looked like he was being disobedient because yom v'yom, yom, every day, they were bugging him about this. Have any of you perhaps been bugged every day to do something that you're not entirely comfortable with or something that you feel like might be a slippery slope? Over the last few years, any of you, have you had an issue where you're being bugged daily to do something? The first thing we learn about Mordecai is that he cared for an orphan, and that is what is written in James, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father of this to visit war orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's not surprising that the first thing we learn about Mordecai is he cared for an orphan. He was a servant like Joseph, he was a refugee. And while he contributed to his country, people will have conspiracy theories about different things that a government is actually pagan It wasn't a conspiracy theory in Egypt or Persia. It was an openly pagan country. And he still found a way to contribute and to serve, just like Daniel did, just like Joseph did. He served with honesty and integrity and loyalty. And even when it was going to cost him, he still remained loyal to his king. Would the music team please come up? Would you please stand? Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, Adon Olam, our Father in Heaven, Master of the Universe. Lord, I thank you that it is you who is God, and you anoint us with your Spirit, that you anoint us with the Spirit of Wisdom, that through you we have eyes that can see and ears that can hear. Lord, you hold all things in your hand, and in the challenges that present themselves to this generation, whatever they may be, wherever we have a Haman, the demands we bow. Lord, I ask that you would put in the hearts of everyone here and in believers across the world, the courage and the strength to refuse, even if they're badgered yom vi yom, every day, day in and day out, that they would not acquiesce or give in lord i ask that you would give us the humility to carry out your will that we would not do throw, do so through pride or puffed up egos but that we would do it with strength we would do it with dignity and we would do it as servants of the master yeshua lord i thank you for each and every person here and i ask that you would be with us as we go through the rest of this day. Lord, I ask that you would give us the eyes to see and ears to hear that we need. Lord, every single person here needs a courage and a wisdom that is from you and not from the world. Because without you, we have nothing. And we look to you, our maker and our king. And it is in the name of your son, Messiah Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Dank u